This bill would increase active transportation by 70%, and it changes it to a percentage so that as the bill grows in the future, we will grow with it. This bill says that if 15% or more of your fatalities are bicyclists or pedestrians, you have to spend 15% of your highway safety dollars on bicyclists and pedestrian safety. The core transportation programs of the United States for the next five years, as well as a big infusion of cash into infrastructure. And if it doesn't happen now, there's a decent chance that the Democrats will lose one branch of government or another, and it'll make it a lot harder to do some of the good things that are in this bill. So if you were looking at the House Invest Act going, we are on the verge of really getting some transformative transportation policy. Where it stands right now, it just doesn't look that way. It's going to be more incremental, positive changes, not the type of reordering of transportation spending that I personally believe is really essential for climate change and safety and equity over the long run. So welcome to Bike Talk, KPFK live stream, now on Zoom. This is Don Ward and my co-host, Nick Richard. We're here today with Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists, and Kia Wilson, who is the Streets Blog USA Senior Editor. And we're here to discuss the transportation bill that is making its way through the House and the Senate. And Karen, you've been working hard on this. You've described yourself as also the lobbyist, right, for the League of American Bicyclists. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on what you've been doing and what's coming through the pipeline here? Sure. So this bipartisan infrastructure bill that we've been hearing about for a while, it's actually on the Senate floor and going through votes. And we expect that what comes out of the Senate will be the final bill. I will say that there's two pieces that make up this bill. One is something that Congress does every five years, which is reauthorize the policy and funding for the next five years. And then you've got the Biden package added on top of that. So it's two things, making it much bigger and a little more controversial than usual. What's controversial? So everybody wants infrastructure, but people want different kinds of infrastructure. And they also question how it should be paid for. The base bills of this were two bipartisan bills that sort of happened behind the scenes while you saw the senators at the White House and what you saw in the news. That was sort of the Biden piece of it. Everything else was sort of happening behind the scene. And so it's this extra half a trillion dollars going into infrastructure. And then, of course, there's the connection to the Democratic priorities that might come up next. So the Democrats would like a more progressive infrastructure bill, of course. And the Republicans want something much smaller. And so that's where a lot of the debate has been. I was going to let Kia jump in. Yeah, Terrence has given a really good overview. I would just add that the way that I've sort of been describing this bill is it's kind of the do or die moment for transportation priorities for the Democrats. The Democratic Party has a very closely held majority in the Senate and the Congress. This is sort of their last chance to pass both the reauthorization, which is just a fancy word for rubber stamping the core transportation programs of the United States for the next five years, as well as this thing that every president for 
quite a while and it's been chasing, which is a big infusion of cash into infrastructure. And if it doesn't happen now, there's a decent chance that the Democrats will lose one branch of government or another, and it'll make it a lot harder to do some of the good things that are in this bill. However, there are a lot of things in this bill that are controversial um, in the sustainable transportation community in a lot of ways. There's been a lot of attention paid to the ratio between transit and roads funding. I can say more on that later. It's a very big topic. There has been a lot of attention paid to what is going to come after this infrastructure bill with the human infrastructure bill, which is a budget resolution that they expect to pass through reconciliation and is anticipated to contain hundreds of billions of dollars for vehicle electrification, which is a hot topic of a lot of debate, especially in the active transportation community. And it really is just sort of to tell a joke that I've been throwing around a lot lately, turducking together a whole lot of things that are only going to pass as a group. And there's a good and bad in that that we can dig into as we continue our conversation. So you talked about the ratio, but I don't know if that's the first thing that you want to talk about. But I remember I talked to Don about that and he was like, oh, yeah, figures the, the well, ratio. What, what, yeah. what, what I'm saying is what I've heard is that the ratio for active transportation funding that has gotten worse in comparison with highway funding. But I don't know if that's totally accurate. Do you want to expand on that? Like, And also in terms of if the ratio is going down, how does it compare to things like inflation or infrastructure building? Like, are we actually getting less money now? than we were previously if you factor in inflation and that kind of thing. I will let Karen talk about the active transportation side of it because she's really the person that I'm looking to for a lot of these conversations as I'm doing my reporting. The ratio that is getting a lot of attention in the transportation community at large is the 80-20 split, which is this, to make a very long history kind of simple, this handshake rule we've had since the Reagan era that said that about 20% of contract authority, which is a fancy word for stuff we promise through reauthorization, will go towards transit and 80% will go towards drivers, more or less. Active transportation isn't a part of that. However, of course, that ratio has huge implications for the reality of life on two wheels, two feet, a wheelchair, anything like that. So I will let Karen talk a little bit about what's actually in this for active commuters, specifically from the Bike Week's perspective, which I think it has some really exciting silver linings, but it is situated within this larger bill that groups like NACTO and Transportation for America have said kind of maintains the status quo when it comes to giving a lot to drivers and not as much to transit. However, it's giving a lot more to both of them with a ratio that is going to be the subject of a lot of attention for the next couple of months. So when we look at active transportation, our ratio has been going down in part because in the bill that was passed in 2015, we were stuck at a dollar amount. So we were given 850 million a year. Meanwhile, the rest of the bill has been increasing every year. I think from our perspective, we really want a new bill because the longer we're stuck at this current policy, we are a smaller and smaller percentage. This bill would increase active transportation by 70%, which is a significant increase, and it changes it to a percentage so that as the bill grows in the future, we will grow with it. The other real focus we had this year was on safety, and that bicyclists and pedestrians make up 20% of roadway fatalities right now. 
So one in five people that die on our roads is a bicyclist or a pedestrian. And yet we've been getting roughly 1%, maybe 2% of safety money. And that has been a real sticking point for us. And part of the reason is states are always looking to pinpoint specific places where fatalities happen. But when you look at roads that are unsafe for pedestrians and bicyclists, it's corridors. So we weren't showing up in their formula. What this bill says is that if 15% or more of your fatalities are bicyclists or pedestrians, you have to spend 15% of your highway safety dollars on bicyclists and pedestrian safety. So for states like California, Florida, Texas, New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, those states are going to have to increase the funding they spend on biking and walking exponentially. And then there's other changes throughout the safety program that also points money towards vulnerable road users, people biking, walking, using wheelchairs and things like that. So those are two major wins that we were really excited about. Can we pull back and say everything in the bill that is worth putting in a condensed description? Also, Mike's here. Mike McGinn, Executive Director of America Walks. Hi there. Sorry I'm late. It's good to have you. So do you want everything that's good for biking and walking or? Yeah. Okay. So that's on the infrastructure side is the basic spending for biking and walking infrastructure, the safety side. There's new money for better planning to help local governments and states look at how easy it is to get from one place to another across all modes. So you could say, okay, we have a low-income community here. We have a job center there, but there's a big highway in the middle. If we build a bike ped tunnel or bridge, now 6,000 families will have access to those jobs within a 15-minute bike ride. So there's that data in there that we think will be really helpful. Another major piece is on the vehicle safety side, where right now... USDOT through the National Highway Traffic Safety Association. You know, if you ever seen that when you go to buy a car, they show the five star ratings that only looks at the safety of the people inside the vehicle. This bill for the very first time will look at the safety of people outside the vehicle. So if you get hit by a car, what the hood and bumper are made of can affect how injured you get. So looking at things like that, looking at headlights. I will say the Senate bill is not nearly as strong as the House bill, but it would still change that quite a bit. And then we also worked with the Transportation Equity Coalition. There's some changes on enforcement and equity to give states more resources to end racial profiling, which we think is a really good piece. And then there's still some tax code things that we're trying to get in this bill, like a bicycle commuter benefit or a rebate if you buy an e-bike. But those we may have to wait and fight for in the reconciliation. That's a snapshot of what's in it. So, Mike, what are you excited about? (laughs) Well, I'm excited to be here with you guys, number one. Glad to talk about this. What Karen has gone through are all definitely improvements from the past. But, you know, there's a certain level of disappointment in where we are with this bill. The House Invest Act, so just to back up, Every five years or so, you get this transportation reauthorization bill that sets all the rules. And what you have to recognize is that the status quo system you know, sends large amounts of dollars to the state highway departments, and they have a great degree of flexibility on how to spend the money. And what we tend to see, and even I gave something away by saying state highway departments, they're actually transportation departments, but they tend to really focus on highway construction and expansion. 
So there's this one question of the more money for roads and bridges and the more money for transit and the more money for active transportation and, and safety. But there's also a separate question of what are the rules that govern how that money is spent. And, and the House bill, the House Invest Act, the Transportation Reauthorization Bill, had really strong rules regarding safety, climate, and fix it first. The Senate Reauthorization Bill, which has now been folded into this infrastructure bill, didn't do that. It very much maintained the status quo, which is why an organization like Transportation for America has such concerns with it. It's because, well, we're just going to continue kind of the highway expansion binge we've been on, and we're not going to fix it first. We're not going to focus on climate. We're not going to focus on safety. And the politics of the bill, Biden wants a win. That's a bipartisan win. And a lot of the Democratic Party legislators, they want to win too. And to the extent they're going to push back against the Senate infrastructure bill and the Senate general maintenance of the status quo, and Karen's indicated all of the things that are positive in there. There's gradations here. To the extent the House of Representatives pushes back, it's going to be for what goes into reconciliation, it looks like. You know, all of those soft infrastructure things, you might call it. And they are very important issues, childcare and, and all the other things that the House and the Democratic Party was looking for as part of the second reconciliation bill. And so there's a question as to what degree other provisions of the House transportation bill, good provisions, will be able to make it into the final package. And we don't get to revisit this for years because it's a the five-year reauthorization process. So if you were looking at the House Invest Act going, we are on the verge of really getting some transformative transportation policy, where it stands right now, it just doesn't look that way. You know, that it's going to be more incremental, positive changes, not the type of reordering of transportation spending that I personally believe is really essential for climate change and safety and equity over the long run. So... I would agree with that. And I think everyone here would say that the INVEST Act was much closer to what we want to see, but the INVEST Act was not bipartisan. So usually, and what we still would like to happen is for the Senate bill to be conferenced with the INVEST Act. So the two bills would go together and would be compromised. Then you get one bill because the exact same language has to pass the House and the Senate for it to become a law. But because the INVEST Act was not bipartisan, the Republicans in the House said they were gonna support the Senate Act. So you would have had three against one anyway, once you got to that conference. So we would have had some of the better ideas from the House Invest Act, and I want that, and we have been pushing for that, but just the result of the way our system works, it's generally incremental change. And I agree with Mike, it's not enough to address climate change, and it feels like we're in this crisis. But I think for me, I would rather see this bill go forward with the changes in it than it not pass and us wait till the next Congress and roll the dice and hope for a better bill next Congress. Because I think it's the Democrats holding the trifecta and we don't expect them to have the trifecta next Congress. Just to add to that a little bit, in addition to wanting to see this mega bill conferenced against the INVEST Act. Another thing I'm hearing from a lot of the advocacy community is how critical the amendments process is going to be. So the National Association of City Transportation Officials, NACTO, put out a really, really good five-minute call script of key amendments that they want people to watch. And that includes things like strengthening some of the weaker points in the Senate bill, which were like 
we have a thing right now where we allow states to set regressive safety targets. A state can say, well, 200 people biking died last year, and we want to set our target next year to be 250 people, you know, not because they want people to die, but because they recognize that if they fail to meet those targets, they will suffer some consequences of how much funding they can access and things like that. We want to close that loophole. That was a major provision of the INVEST Act that I think most rational people (laughs) would really love to see closed finally. But now it has to happen through the amendments process. So I would encourage everyone to take a look at NACDO's website, and it's also on the Streetblock Twitter and LinkedIn, all kinds of things, because there are a number of provisions that we can put onto the Senate bill so that this is moving forward towards those goals that we all want. I'll wholeheartedly endorse that as well. The process isn't over yet. There are the amendments and the NACDO amendments. Transportation for America also has a list. And these are definitely it's things the same list. They, they put it together yeah. together. Yeah, yeah we put yeah. that to our folks. Yeah, list. and we've been we've been pushing out that to our folks as well. So people should definitely do that. And and that idea of a conference, which is that some of the House provisions might get negotiated into the final bill, is still there. And whether that happens in a formal conference process over the reauthorization or whether it's just part of the negotiations between the houses. I think what I was getting at earlier, though, to hit this point again, it's not just a question of Republicans don't want these things. This is a choice by Democrats. I mean, we have the trifecta. But what we're seeing is that the willingness of the Democratic Party to prioritize transforming transportation, it's not as high a priority for them as an advocate like myself would want it to be. Right now, I think nationally, transportation is 29% of global warming emissions in the country. And what I'm seeing, and I've been in this job a year now, and I was kind of curious, is Are federal politics the same as Washington state politics are different? And what I see is that there's actually a bipartisan coalition for highway expansion. It's what needs to be recognized. There's a lot of Democratic Party politicians. You know, so state of Washington is considered to be a pretty progressive state. And we have a governor who's the climate governor. But it was important for him a couple of years ago to push through a transportation package that had a lot of highway expansion, including highways that go through black and brown neighborhoods in the state of Washington because those are the Democratic Party constituencies that want those, particularly construction trades and labor want those. And the Republican Party has constituencies that are businesses that build highways and and the like that also want this. So we're kind of seeing the same dynamic playing out here where both sides, both Republicans and Democrats, understand an infrastructure bill, what it means. It's a large pile of money, I wish they were more comfortable with the idea that there are as many jobs or more jobs in maintenance and transit than there are in highway expansion. But they are all very comfortable with the idea of highway expansion being an issue. And that has negative effect, obviously, not just on climate, but in terms of generating the induced demand for vehicles out on the surface streets as well. And and the streets that lead up to the highway have to be made bigger. And a lot of this money goes to state highway departments to take two-lane highways and convert them to wider highways. So the inertia behind road expansion and highway expansion that started back in the Eisenhower era continues today. And this bill won't arrest that or stop that. And the major point I'm making here, this isn't a case where the Democrats are fighting a tough battle against the Republicans. There's a lot of Democratic Party support for this. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is ultimately what will change that is 
people on the ground asking their elected representatives to place a higher priority on walking, biking, transit, safety, and climate than on highway expansion and trying to create the type of power that can change this. Because I think what we're telling you now is we don't have the power to change this. There isn't sufficient public demand to get a different bill in this Congress and this president right now because these issues aren't treated with the same priority from public demand yet. So another dynamic that Mike talked about is that most of the money does flow to the state level. And so one of the things that we have been pushing for is to get more local control, more money down to local governments, down to the metro region, because the state DOTs, they are really thinking about how to get from one town to the next and not about what happens within those local governments in those cities. The way the system is set up, it's really hard for, I think Mike can speak to us, a mayor to say, well, this is what I want the state to do in my area, even with the metropolitan area. So that we think is another piece, like that divide. He's right. It's not between Republicans and Democrats. Part of it is urban versus rural, but a lot of it is state versus local government. Absolutely correct. And right, the more money that can go to cities and towns or counties even to decide how to spend it you'll see different infrastructure built. Whereas you're sending it to states, I'm now talking about Washington, but it's probably true in other states as well. They've got some piece of the interstate system they've been trying to finish for the last 30 or 40 years, and this will look great to them. But if you're a city or town, you probably have uh, sidewalks you haven't built yet, or you need to repave your streets because they haven't been repaved in a while. And when you repave a street and you have a complete streets policy, that can lead to a bike lane and ADA ramps and all sorts of local improvements. So sending money to cities and towns for maintenance and for their discretion definitely supports active transportation in a way that sending money to state highway departments usually doesn't. I think that's really important. And while we're addressing divides within even the Democratic Party, one that we're paying a lot of attention to at Streets Blog is the divide over what kind of climate measures should be at the forefront of federal policy. The Biden administration, pretty much since the campaign stage, has really put a lot of juice behind electric vehicle electrification. You know, as we speak, I'm pretty sure Biden is on the front lawn of the White House driving an electric Jeep Wrangler. Um, he announced some pretty <laughs> <laughs> it's fun footage. I would encourage you to look it up. It'll be in my article and filing after I get off the phone. But it's in part because he is putting out some, I think, very commendable rollbacks on Trump era fuel economy standards, as well as a plan to get the nation to 50% new vehicle purchases being electric by 2030. The problem with that is most automakers are coming out saying, great, in order to get that done, please give us hundreds of billions of dollars in consumer subsidies for um, predominantly wealthy white Americans, if the state programs are any indication, to purchase EVs. Um, at Streetsblog, we talk a lot about how we really need to see mode shift as our primary climate solution. We need to get more people walking and biking for those short journeys. Of course, cars will always be with us, and they should but we are struggling a little bit with the news that specifically if this bill passes and we hope it will with some critical amendments, we will then be on to a reconciliation package that could dump a whole lot more electric vehicles onto our roads. I don't take a lot of solace from the idea that the Ford F-150 is getting a motor that's going to make it 30% heavier and make it more fatal to pedestrians and cyclists on our roads. I get some solace from the fact that it doesn't have a tailpipe anymore, I guess, but I would rather have people biking or walking a mile to the Starbucks, two miles to pick up their kid from school. 
our interest is in eroding auto centricity and car dependency in the United States. And a lot of the policies that are up for debate right now are really about how much we're going to maintain car dependency while trying to reverse the effects of climate change. And I think the answer is we can't. Is there any kind of planning reform in this bill? Does it ever address, for example, like suburban sprawl type planning versus density planning? Is there any kind of incentives in the bill for that to switch that type of planning over? I don't see anything to address land use, which is really what's critical in this. And looking at that, there is money for states to do complete streets planning, to set complete street standards. And to do that work. And I think, Mike, it was the Secretary of Transportation for Washington who said, we don't have a transportation problem, we have a housing problem. And that's what we see, you know, as housing gets more expensive, people are living further away. We're not getting to those issues of sprawl. There were some provisions in the INVEST Act aimed at getting states to start measuring access in addition to other factors that they're required to measure. So it's all well and good if you have a grocery store within a stone's throw of your house, but if there's a highway between you and that grocery store and you cannot access it without a vehicle, then it might as well not be there. There were some fantastic provisions in the INVEST Act to basically require states to measure that lack of access over simply just driver level of service that I would love to see appended back onto this bill during the conference stage. And I think some of the climate provisions in the House bill might have that indirect effect of affecting decisions on what highways to invest in or what roads to invest in as well. Karen's point is really well taken, though. I mean, one of the best things we could do for climate is break up exclusionary zoning and allow people to live in neighborhoods which already have a transit line and a grocery store and a drugstore and a school, all potentially within walking or biking distance, as well as making it, and I don't have the exact statistic, but an extraordinary number of daily trips are under three miles, which really makes a bicycle the best way to get around or under one mile, which is walking distance. And if we just could prioritize those types of movements in those spaces, you could transfer a lot of trips from driving to walking and biking. And then the housing issue as well, particularly the cities where the housing prices are really booming. If you could just allow missing middle housing in those places, you'd put more people in the types of neighborhoods where they could meet their needs by walking or biking or using transit and take a lot fewer car trips. So 100% with Kia on the point around simply replacing every vehicle trip with an electric vehicle trip is not going to get us where we need to go. There's just no way it's going to be adopted fast enough, and it won't get us the deep enough reductions to where we want to go. It still comes with all the safety issues. It still comes with issues of other types of pollutants, you know, like brake pads, et cetera. It comes with all the materials, mining. It comes with all the carbon that goes into making the steel or getting the rubber into the car. There's all sorts of costs to it. And it's always kind of really interesting to me why walking, which is zero emissions and which we all do, somehow or another doesn't seem to be treated as much of a climate solution in these bills. Just simply steering some of that money to building out sidewalk networks. And again, you can change zoning laws in the private sector will build a lot of housing, won't cost the government a penny. Both of those things could really replace a lot of car trips. We've been bemoaning the fact that there's not stronger federal regulation on this, and there's a lot of flexibility for states, but there's flexibility both ways. And so there's still a real advocacy play that can be made at the state level to say, yeah, you have to set a safety performance measure, set a good one, set an aggressive one, 
the penalty is that you have to spend your safety money on safety. There's still a lot of work that can be done from the advocacy perspective. It just is after this bill is finished, it's going to move from the federal level to the state level. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So for your listeners, pay attention to see who your local League of American Bicyclist folks are and come to our website, see if there's a local walking advocacy group. Oftentimes it's the same group. There's a lot of walk bike groups out there. So get involved and influence city council members, mayors, state legislators, county council members, and the like. Because even though we've been talking about we're not transforming things fast enough, the reality is everything that's in those bills, in the House bill or in the Senate bill that looks better than it did in the past, is because of public pressure. These ideas have been here for a long time, and the legislators are smart people. They understand the ideas but they're also politicians and they respond to what they believe the public wants. So your voice matters. Listeners, get engaged. Okay. Thanks for coming on, everybody. It's been a great conversation. This stuff, it gets really wonky and confusing for folks like myself that are just not in this space. So it really helps to have you guys come on and talk about it and clear up a lot of the confusion and misunderstandings out there. I want to thank Kia Wilson, Streets Blog USA Senior Editor, Mike McGinn, Executive Director of America Walks, and Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists. We'd love to have you guys back on and talk some more about this as it makes its way through the pipeline to finality, right? Which is, as I understand it, is coming in the next week or so. Thanks again for coming on, you guys. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Thanks. Yeah, yeah thanks. Talk again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 